This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. It's a big week for Governor John Hickenlooper. Lawmakers are back in session today with the power to make his top priority happen, or to crush it. Tomorrow, Hickenlooper will deliver the State of the State speech, and on Saturday, he'll remarry. We talked about all of that and followed up on promises he made this time last year in our regular conversation at the Capitol. First, to that top priority. This year, the hospital provider fee, I think, is going to be probably the biggest thing just because it is the connection that allows us to invest into higher education, into K-12, into broadband deployment, you know, really into into transportation on a long-term basis. So I think that, that everything will keep coming back to the hospital provider fee. For those who are unfamiliar with the intricacies of the Colorado budget, uh, they may be perplexed by the fact that a fee hospitals pay would have anything to do with all those other priorities you talked about. Only in Colorado. (laughs) Only in Colorado. This influences how much money the state has to work with each year, and it connects to refunds under Tabor. So the fee was created in 2009. Hospitals pay it in order to trigger federal reimbursements for treating people on public assistance like Medicaid. And this allowed the state to expand Medicaid, even before Obamacare, I should say. You want lawmakers to change how this provider fee is accounted for in the state budget. Wonky, but important. Because of Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, If this fee is reclassified, taken out from under Tabor, the state could keep more tax money that it collects. So you have been advocating for this change since last spring, but the Republican leadership is basically saying this is a non-starter. We spoke with Senate President Bill Cadman. It's a non-starter because the people have already said it's a non-starter. This is not me, the Republican leader. This is not the Senate president saying this. The Constitution said this is a non-starter. Republican leaders have also called this plan a sham and a gimmick. Uh, Given uh, the intransigence... Don't don't forget the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse. Somehow that's connected. I can't can't remember exactly what the details were. What are your options, uh, given that you've got Republicans who control the Senate saying, there's no room here for wiggling? Well, let me make two points. One is that Tabor's goal was to restrict the growth of government spending, which it has done. When Tabor was reset in 2006, if you go back and look at the growth in the spending of the government of of the state of Colorado, it has not increased by more than inflation plus population. That's what Tabor asked for. The only place that has gone over that is if you look at this fee that was created in 2009. So after the Tabor reset, hospitals convinced the legislature that they should get some compensation for the indigent care they provide, as you point out, uh, and the state passed legislation to allow a fee to be collected— and that money is used to get a, a 100% match from the federal government. Should that go towards Tabor refunds, those, those fees that are collected on, should that get refunded to everybody? I don't think that's what Tabor meant. So I don't see the Constitution speaking on this. There was a legislative legal services came out, and I'm not sure they understood the issue. We'll sit down and, and talk to them. This I is was, the nonpartisan Yeah, nonpartisan uh, legal arm. Yeah. legal arm that advises the legislature. And I'm just not sure. They're smart people, but I'm not sure they had the right facts. I was encouraged that... President Cadman, to seek their advice, was considering doing something around the hospital provider fee until he found out that it was, that he felt, or the legislative legal advisors felt it was against the Constitution. If we can resolve that, it sounds like he's ready to to do a deal. He said also that, and I'll quote him, he said that he, quote unquote, cannot entertain at this point, probably never, anything that violates what our attorneys downstairs have told us. So if they actually reconsider and, and we give them new facts and they say, 
well, actually, this isn't against the Constitution, then we might be much closer to a compromise. I have tremendous respect for, for Bill Cadman. I mean, he's one of the smartest guys in the building. I think he genuinely cares about Colorado. My sleeves are still rolled up. I'm still at the table, and I want to see if we can figure something out so that we can fund transportation and roads and transit and fund higher education. So it's about getting this legislative legal arm more information? Or? Yes, I think, I think when we were working on this last spring, we, had, we talked at length to a number of the attorneys in the, in the attorney general's office, and they felt that this wasn't a, a tax and that it qualified as an enterprise. You know, an enterprise is a state-run business, essentially. Right, uh, sort of. But there's a, there's a lot of different, a lot of leeway in, in that interpretation. I think we want to make sure that the lawyers in the, the legislative legal services, that they have all the facts. And I think based, I mean, the attorney general's office does have all the facts, and those attorneys have, you know, again, informally, but on a number of occasions have said, yeah, no, this is a fee, not a, it shouldn't be qualified as a tax. So you're, you're plainly saying legislative legal services doesn't have all the facts. They did this with a partial picture? Well, that, that's what we're assuming because we think that the, the logic doesn't really make sense given what we know about other enterprises and, and how they've been categorized. Enterprises uh, basically are allowed to operate without their revenue being counted under Tabor. The Koch brothers-backed group, Americans for Prosperity, is also challenging you on this. The group asked Republican lawmakers to sign a pledge, essentially saying they won't vote to reclassify the hospital provider Wait, 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 but Americans for Prosperity, that's the Koch brothers, so they're mostly, their agenda really is just to try and keep burning more coal. So their focus is not necessarily about really specifically about this issue. I think that their goal in this case is to restrain the growth of government. And AFP spokesman Michael Fields told us the state brings in enough money already. It's more a matter of creating efficiencies and re-examining priorities. We have a $27 billion budget, enough money to deal with the core responsibilities of government. There are several things that could be dealt with that maybe the governor isn't willing to do that would open up more revenue. Um, One would be to get rid of the hospital provider fee totally. Senate President Bill Cadman says roughly the same thing. Colorado doesn't have a budget problem, he thinks, but rather priority challenges. He says instead of funding education, the state has chosen to expand Medicaid several times. You've told us before you don't think shrinking Medicaid to make more money available for things like transportation and education is the right path. You'd rather people have health insurance. That does seem to imply that you've prioritized health insurance over other things. What would you say to Senator Cadman and these critics at AFP? Well, I think I would lay it out in a different way. At a certain point, it's not just health insurance, it's health care. And and again, as you go through these discussions, you hear story after story of, of kids who wouldn't have had insurance who had uh, brain injuries in an automobile accident or something, it's very difficult to take insurance away from people. Now, obviously, if they are successful in locking down government, uh, one of the things that is going to will be an unavoidable consequence is that we will take a lot of people that have health insurance off of health insurance. And I, you know, are you saying that's going to happen if the I'd hospital say, fee I, isn't reclassified? I'm saying that's, that's a, a high probability. There are only so many places you can look You'd have to cut back dramatically on the hospital provider fee uh, or eliminate it is what seems to be what they're saying. And I, you know, I'm a little shocked that that's the, the solution. I share the, the interest that we've expanded care. We need to begin finding out how to bend the cost curve. And we're doing that. Colorado is one of the leading states in figuring out how to use the scaling, the more people under coverage to reduce or you know, slow down this runaway growth we've had for the last 30 years on healthcare. 
Senator Cadman told us in a conversation this week that he thinks there are people on Medicaid in Colorado who don't need to be and could probably afford their own plans on the exchange. Do you think that's true? Again, I don't know where he's getting his data, so it's hard for me to criticize what he's saying. It's unlikely that it's any significant number of people. Republicans were reluctant to reclassify this hospital provider fee that's so key to the budget in the last session. So you had some inkling that they would be hesitant in this session. Why not propose a more conservative budget with the idea that this might not go as you foresaw? We do. Our budget is a conservative budget. So we've, I mean, the cuts have been made in our budget. What we're saying now is without the hospital provider fee, these are the cuts you're going to see. And they're generally not pleasant. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper is our guest. We spoke at the state capitol about his top priorities for the legislative session, which starts today. After a break, a checkup on the promises he made at this time last year, including one to diffuse tensions over fracking. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's rejoin our regular conversation with Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. Before the break, he laid out his top priorities for this year's legislative session, which starts today. He'll expand on them tomorrow in the State of the State speech. Now let's revisit some of the promises he made in last year's speech. Let's start with disagreements over oil and gas production. This time last year, you talked, hopefully, about the work of your oil and gas task force. It was formed to address tensions among oil companies and communities that want to limit or altogether ban fracking. It was created as part of a compromise to keep several fracking-related measures off the ballot. And the task force came up with some recommendations— But now it's coming under scrutiny from both sides as regulators try to implement these recommendations. Words have been used like duplicative, costly, virtually meaningless. The environmental group Earthworks Oil and Gas Accountability Project has called these draft rules the worst proposed from the staff we've seen in eight or nine years. Is a compromise still salvageable? The other side is saying these are unnecessarily and overreaching and, and far too intrusive. So that's, we hear that from the, the industry side of things. Both sides seem to be pretty ticked off. Often that means you're getting pretty close to some meaningful compromise. All right. Is it a compromise that is profound enough to keep the kinds of ballot measures that you avoided with the first volley off the ballot again? Because there are efforts to bring some of them back. Well, I think a lot of those efforts are, and they're very well-intentioned. I mean, people care deeply about their communities. I respect that. But you can't ban fracking, right? That, that's a taking of private property that would, without question, be overturned, if not in the state Supreme Court, in the U.S. Supreme Court, and it would subject the state to large amounts of financial liability. I mean, I think even if a few of these things get on the ballot, I don't see the people of Colorado voting to put their state in that kind of of a situation. So it sounds like you might be resigned to some of those measures making it to the ballot. Oh, sure. No, I, I, I mean, it doesn't take a, a large number of signatures to get, get ballot initiatives filled up and, and on the ballots. Back to these proposed rules, do you like them? And do you think there is room for compromise? I mean, you've got both sides saying these aren't worth the paper they're printed on. Those are my words. <laughs> yeah, they certainly are. Um, I could never say that. <laughs> you know, I've, the way the process works in Colorado, both sides get an open hearing. There's a long period for public input, 
And that process be- makes compromise not just, you know, it's, it's certainly not inevitable, but it's a likely outcome of that long process. But given that there may be fracking-related measures on the ballot, is it perhaps a sign of the oil and gas task force's failure? In other words, it was created to avert that no, no, kind of it, step, and, it, and that step may be happening I, anyway. I don't think that's true. I think it was created to try and make sure we gave as much voice to local communities as we could, but at the same time protect private property. I mean, it's in almost every constitution of every state in America. Let's talk about another priority you set out in the last state of the state. You talked about places in Colorado where employment is lagging, like along the state's southern border. Your staff has visited a lot of these places. Are you coming to solutions or things you can do to help particularly rural Colorado, which isn't feeling the economic success of the front range? Well, the Rural Rural Economic Development Initiative, what we call READY, has given out, I don't know, it's not quite a million dollars in grants yet. It's probably a little over half a million dollars. But to to something like what? What Oh, so these are like small businesses out in in Fruta or, you know, somewhere on the West Slope and and usually in in a smaller community that doesn't have a tourism engine, doesn't have a resort. And I've gone and toured a bunch of these businesses. They're making the part that operates a spray paint valve and they've got a new way of doing it and they're now exporting around the country and if they could just expand a little bit and get a little support uh, expanding their building they think they could hire another six people well hiring six people in fruit is like hiring a thousand people in metro denver so we've been working on that jump start we passed last year we have several companies that are applying there's a colorado clean asw which is a biodegradable plastic company TSW Analytics, which does forensics investigation technology development. These are all companies that are choosing to partner with the Colorado Mesa State University in Grand Junction and work on connecting the intellectual property of their company with the university, and they get tax benefits, and that helps them hire more employees. I mean, that's the kind of effort to get job creation in rural areas that that we've been trying to do. And I think we're going to, you know, in the next 12 or 18 months, we're going to see some real, real jobs come out of it. Uh, Space to Create is a statewide program to try and find, as we build affordable housing in, in communities, try to make sure uh, some portion of that affordable housing goes, again, with the same income requirements, but goes to painters, uh, musicians, artists. Why does helping a painter create jobs? Well, painters, musicians, uh, they are all around quality of life, and quality of life is what is attracting young technologists, people that write code for the Internet, uh, people that are doing software uh, development, they want to be in places that, I mean, most of them were nerds in high school, and they hung out with the painters and the artists. And study after study shows demographically where you have creative energy is where you end up having technical people working. Not to go from artists to marijuana, but and there's, there's, <laughs> nothing in, there's nothing implied in this transition. To marijuana banking, this is another priority you set last year. Cash-only businesses invite corruption. Just look at the history of prohibition. We will continue to push the federal government to allow banking for this industry. But the past 12 months have seen a few setbacks. Most recently, a credit union Colorado set up to help marijuana businesses was, again, denied access to the federal banking system. Is this issue now in the hands of the feds, or is there more you can do as a state-level executive? I mean, what we need to do, and it is perplexing, because... This is a, you know, a great social experiment that's going on. I voted against it. A lot of people voted against it. But now we're doing it. And while we're doing it, it's ridiculous not to be able to have banking part of it because it just makes it dangerous for anybody involved. They're now 
23 states that have medical marijuana, and then you've got Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and D.C. that have recreational marijuana. Over half the states in the nation now uh, have some form of legalized marijuana. There ought to be some, it seems to me the time has come for us states to band together and petition the federal government unified to say maybe a credit union of some size, some controlled way that we can have banking for this industry. But you think the heft of multiple states making that request will mean a different outcome than what has already been seen? Well, I can tell you that my individual efforts haven't, and I've you know, talked to the White House, I've talked to Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, we haven't gotten anywhere. Are you drafting that letter? Is it a letter? I don't know. Or are so, you so going to get together to with other governors? Of, I've talked to a couple of governors, and we're going to meet with uh, governors meet in a couple of weeks down in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and that's one of the things I plan to put on the agenda is to say, those of us that are in this experiment, whether we liked it or not, let's see if we can petition the state and get, or the federal government and see if we can get some sort of temporary banking capacity so that we don't have people walking around with bags of cash. So you'd lead that, it sounds like. Yeah, of course. Let's end on a personal note. Uh, we've talked a lot about policy. You recently announced your engagement to Denver businesswoman Robin Pringle. Um, just, just for the record, I don't really think of her as a businesswoman, to, but that's <laughs> okay. the nature of our relationship. <laughs> all right. She is in business. She is. And she's um, an executive, I guess. That's true. It's all fair. Uh, okay. I, I wonder, as someone who's been married and single as governor, does someone who holds public office face pressure not to be single? No, I don't think so. I think that... Uh, there's, I don't feel there's a public scrutiny or that kind of pressure. I do feel that you go home, and it's hard to just physically and emotionally to go home and decompress and you know read a, a book or call a friend. It, it makes a big difference to have someone who really is a soulmate and really cares about how you're doing and, and listens to you know the, sometimes the fundamental nonsense of government, as I used to call it. I can't tell you what a difference it's made. And I think, you know, obviously I think Robin Pringle is one of the most incredible women I've ever met. Uh, Still a little bit disbelieving that she thinks that I'm worthy of her. But, you know, what they say, even the blind squirrel can occasionally find an acorn. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for being with us. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, we speak with him regularly in his office. He'll deliver his State of the State speech tomorrow, and he'll be married Saturday in what he describes as a teeny tiny wedding. At CPRnews.org, you can hear this week's other conversations with the Capitol's most powerful people, the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. It's at CPRnews.org. Also a web bonus there. The governor talks about getting creative when it comes to funding for higher education. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The number of murders in Denver last year was the most in a decade. 51 homicides driven in part by a spike in gang violence. Police tout their gang prevention efforts, but admit many families of victims may never get justice. CPR's Ben Marcus reports. Thorell Churchill's 22-year-old son Darius died in a drive-by shooting just blocks from her home in northeast Denver. He was the first murder victim of 2015. I really miss my son. My son was my best friend. Um, we did everything together. Brother, it was a lot of times he wouldn't even want to go hang out with his friends to go play basketball or be active with him. He'd be like, nah, ma'am, hanging out with my mom. <laughs> and, and his friends would look at him crazy like, who wants to sit in the house and hang out with their mom? <laughs> 
Churchill says on the night he was killed, he was on his way to a studio where he was working on a hip-hop album. She believes, even though her son wasn't in a gang, that he was killed by gang members. But she's unsure because police haven't made any arrests. I don't know if I need to pack up me and all my family and move to another state. I'm not knowing, you know, because I don't know what was the cause and what was the reason that they would want to take my son's life. Denver Police Chief Robert White says gang homicides made up about half of the 51 killings, and gang murders are difficult to solve because witnesses are often afraid to come forward. We know who committed a lot of those those homicides. It's just a matter of putting enough facts together where we can present to the DA where they can file the cases and the individuals can get convicted for it. White says after a rash of revenge killings in the spring, the department made gangs a focus. To really kind of get our arms around what's going on as it relates to these gang shootings. I think it's been relatively successful. He credits that and the work of community gang prevention from keeping the homicide number from getting even worse. Reverend Leon Kelly formed a group of former gang members last year designed, he says, to stem the retaliatory nature of the violence. Well, you know, when you still start talking about revenge, you know, revenge is an unruly force. Kelly sits in a wood-paneled office downtown, big fish tanks bubbling softly. He says for the kids he works with, the fish are a calming influence, a way he hopes to break the deadly cycle. And it's almost like, you know, if you hit one of us, we're going to come back and hit two of you. If you hit two of us, we're going to come back and get four of you. Kelly also says as neighborhoods gentrify, especially around Park Hill in North Denver, gang territory is shrinking. It's causing uh, some of the blacks and Hispanics to sort of be on top of each other. And and they're battling for space, they're battling for property, they're battling for their hood space. Other major cities in the country saw similar battles, a similar spike in homicides. Still, murders are historically low. The homicide rates in the United States, especially in the early 1990s, were twice as high as they are now. That's CU Boulder criminologist Michael Radlett. He adds that homicides fell steadily, including in Denver, for most of the last decade. And in 2015, there's no question that the homicide rate in Denver did go up, but it's still below national uh, averages. But Radlett says there's no question there's a problem with unsolved homicides. There are more than 700 unsolved cases just in Denver. More than half of the murders last year remain open. That erodes trust in the community, making new homicides harder to solve. And it robs victims' families, like Thorell Churchill of Closure. I can have more peace with it if I knew that my son had an illness or, you know, and I know that he died in a hospital and we expected that. Churchill says she's doing anything she can to help. She's even contacted a psychic to help find her son's killer. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. The owner of a popular Denver vegetarian restaurant is also a writer. Sidio City's Daniel Landis has a new graphic short story, sort of like a comic book. It's set in the early 1990s in the newly formed Czech Republic. Revolt to what is the story of a velvet revolutionary and a quiet traveler from Colorado? Landis collaborated with Denver illustrator Carl Christian Krumholz. And uh, Daniel, welcome to the program. It's nice to be here. Thank you. I understand you wrote the first draft of this story about two decades ago after a trip to Prague. Uh, Tell me about that trip. Well, I was traveling through Europe and I had been backpacking for about four months and decided to get to the Eastern Bloc countries right after the fall of the Iron Curtain. So I was actually there to see the Beastie Boys on their ill communication tour. 
So they had they were performing at some ice arena, and I went to see them, and then I stayed for almost a month after that. And you think of that as something as a, of a watershed because it was a big deal that a Western band was playing right there. before that. The only Western band that had played in Prague um, was Rage Against the Machine, which is really interesting that that would be the first Western band to really pierce the wall, and then after that, the Beastie Boys. What struck you about Prague at that time, just after the wall fell? Uh, really the juxtaposition of the, of the old culture, of the, the remnants of the communist era, and then the new capitalism, the new money that was infiltrating Prague was really, um, really powerful. So there was two distinct worlds. One was from the old world, and then one was the new capitalist world. This is a tension that makes it into your your graphic uh, short story uh, that is, you know, a revolution occurs, there's political change, and it paves the way for capitalism. And revolutionaries are left to ask, is this what we wanted? Is this what we fought for? Yeah, exactly. That's the existential crisis that our hero Peter goes through is that he fought and his grandfather fought and his father fought for um, a free – Czech Republic for a free Czechoslovakia. Um, And then they get it. And once they get it, they didn't quite understand, particularly Peter, didn't quite understand what was waiting for him on the other side of the wall. And what was waiting was a bunch of money coming in to scoop up the cheap real estate and, and put in concepts that were proven in other places and basically to exploit, in a sense, the new Prague. And yet money and investment, all of that is what the Eastern Bloc countries were thirsting for as well, wasn't it? I think so. And when you are um, – when you have – you're in a position to take advantage of that investment, that's great. But And some of my characters in this story were there. They were perched to take advantage of the investment. But Peter, who really got bludgeoned in the Velvet Revolution – he was the one that spilled blood for this revolution, and he has no access to the to the success that Prague is feeling. This story has been simmering, percolating in you for a long time now. Why was why was this the moment to to write this? Well, I really thought about the the again the existential crisis that Peter was going through as he was sitting in his city, the one that he knew, the one that he loved, the one that he fought for. And then was dealing with this new influx of people. And of course... Gosh, that sounds like Denver. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things, the the parallels that I made was the legalization of, of marijuana in Denver. It was something that people fought very, very hard for. And they it finally becomes legal. And then what? And then... There was a whole new influx of, of people and, and this, the cityscape changed. So it was very much a moment where I felt um, a solidarity with Peter. Um, and I wanted to tell this as a, a parable of, of what happens when you fight for something and then it happens. Post-revolutionary Prague as a metaphor for post-pot Denver. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, very. We're speaking with Daniel Landis, who has... Uh, penned the new graphic short novel, Revolt to What? Uh, the artist in this case is uh, Carl Christian Krumpholz, who is also from Denver. Uh, you've hinted at this, but you talk about monoculture as well in this story. And you believe that, that artists play a role in that. What is monoculture in your mind? Um, I suppose monoculture is something that I experienced when I traveled to New York City when I was in the early 80s. And I experienced culture shock. 
the culture from where I'm from in Denver to New York City was a culture shock. I took my kids to New York City in 2012 from Denver to New York City, and they didn't experience culture shock. Because what's happening in New York and so much is happening in Denver is so much happening in L.A. is so much happening in Dallas and Austin that there is sort of a monoculture that's existing in all of these cities that the uniqueness of a city is pretty much whitewashed at some point um, when you have the same stores, the same box stores, the same chain stores anywhere you go things start to look the same. So a monoculture to me is when there's a lack of diversity of small businesses that really reflect the interior culture of the city itself. You obviously come at this as a small business owner, um, as owner of City O City, a pretty popular restaurant in Denver. And I suppose that that was true as well for those revolutionaries in Czechoslovakia than the Czech Republic, uh, this idea that they opened the gates to more of a monoculture, I, I guess. Well, I think that they... I think what happens is when you come into a new environment and you have money to spend and you have things that you want to develop, but you didn't take the time to really listen to what the culture of the place that you're moving into, then you're homogenizing that culture with your outside influence before you actually get to know where you are. And I see that a lot in, um, I saw that in Prague in the early nineties. And I see that in Denver now where there's a, a rush to build and define before there's a patience to listen and learn. And yet it could be argued that the ultimate monoculture is communism. You know, when you have one kind of toilet paper and one kind oh, of, for sure, of for toothpaste. Sure. So, for sure. uh, is it less of a monoculture than it was? Oh, in, in Prague? Yeah. Oh yeah. I would imagine. I, I wasn't in Prague during the Times of communism. <laughs> right. It would have been not... a unique perspective if you had been. Yes. Why tell this story in graphic form? Well, I think the mind craves lots of different stimulation. So oftentimes reading a novel, the mind craves that. Sometimes you just want to watch something on Netflix and the mind craves that. And then the, the mind also really likes to see, to work in the comic form. It It's good stimulation and it hits you on a different level than reading or watching. Um, you sort of are doing both at the same time. You're, you're watching something and observing something and also reading. So I really think, and I read a lot of uh, graphic novels and a lot of comics. I think the form itself is it's beautiful storytelling with the artistic touch of a, of a craftsperson. Yeah, it's so nice to finish the text and then really soak in the imagery and and the artistry behind this makes me wonder if you think artists are the antidote to monoculture. Well, uh, I've been working with this idea. Uh, somebody planted this seed that art is resistance. And so I think that it might not be the antidote to a monoculture, but I think it's it's certainly – um, should be kicking in the doors of of anything comfortable, and so art as resistance, I think, is a is a really something that I'm I'm working with and trying to support. I want to just read a little bit of of text before we go. This is you writing at the beginning of the graphic novel. The rattle, clack, hum, swaying of the cold steel train shakes my belly and head as I sweat out a bohemian style hangover. It's so beat generation. It's so beat poet. Do you take do you take inspiration? From oh, I was beats? I was definitely influenced by the beats and and almost warped in the sense that <laughs> I thought that I had to sit down and and create spontaneous prose when I wrote. So it really limited me and I and I thought that I was so influenced by the beats that eventually I had to find my own style, but 
Yeah, that those opening lines, and you read them very well, by the way. Thank you for the, oh, the cadence in that. You're welcome. You, you nailed that. Well, they inspired me too, to a certain extent. How, <laughs> how can they not in Denver, which had such a beat culture? Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Daniel Landis owns the Denver restaurant Sidio City. He's also co-founder of the publishing company Suspect Press. His new graphic short story is called Revolt to What? When we come back, new jokes for a new year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Welcome back to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If you've ever watched bull riding at the stock show, you may have seen Wacy Munsell. He's not a rider. He's the guy in suspenders, a cowboy hat, and makeup. Rodeo clowns, as they are commonly known, aren't just entertainers. They're also there for safety. When a rider flies off the back of a bull, it's Munsell's job to run interference. He's a world champ in the art of distracting big, angry bulls. And I spoke with him last year as he came through Denver for the National Western Stock Show. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Yeah, nice to see you. So the formal name for what you do is bullfighter. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, what does it take to protect a cowboy in the ring? Anything, you know, (laughs) anything from grabbing hold of a bull to letting him hitch into the air. You know, you got to do what you got to do to keep a cowboy safe. Wait, grabbing a hold of the bull? Mm -hmm. That's usually the best way to get somebody's attention. (laughs) Where would you grab a bull? Uh, Head's usually a good place to get a hold of one. Okay. And that puts you in some danger, I'm guessing. Just a little bit. Okay. Isn't it also true that you can try to distract the bull remotely, you know, a little uh, at a distance with the bright stuff you're wearing? Uh, No. uh, At a distance, you know, it's, uh, you know, he might just look over there and look at you, but his attention quickly go back to the cowboy. So it's basically better for me to go in and be physical. How did you learn how to do this? Uh, I'm a third-generation rodeo cowboy, and my dad fought bulls for a living. So naturally, it started with him teaching me, and then I'd, he'd sent me to a good friend, Rex Dunn, uh, to learn to learn more from him. And he was a, a world champion bullfighter also. How young were you when you first got in the ring? Thirteen. Thirteen? Yes, sir. And what was? do you remember that first time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what do you remember of it? It was a great rush, you know, better than any drug or alcohol could ever give you. (laughs) Uh, And your injuries over time? You know, I've been very, very fortunate, you know, and I think I can attribute that to good fundamentals. Uh, Because if you don't have bad fundamentals, I think you're more prone to injury than most. What are the good fundamentals of bull fighting? I think uh, reading cattle has a lot to do with it. Uh, Being able to understand how they move and and where where you can expect them to to move on the next jump before they do it. Uh, Basically, good bullfighting fundamentals is it's all circular. You know, if you move in circles, it's better because bulls have four legs. We have two, so we can turn tighter than they can. So it's better to turn circles with a bull than try to outrun one because four legs are always going to outrun two. I see. So get out of its direct path, gets to its side. And then you're learning to read the bull's body movement, predict where it's going. Do you look the bull in the eyes? Does that Uh, tell you something? Not really. You really pay attention more to the shoulders because that's how they're going to turn is from their front shoulders. So, But you have been injured. Oh, yeah. It comes with a job. I mean, it doesn't matter how talented you are, you're going to get hurt. We checked with the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics, which apparently does not collect employment or wage data 
on rodeo clowns, but what have your injuries been? Uh, I fractured my fibula several years ago, and uh, a lot of guys would sit out and let that heal, but I still had two months worth of, worth of work to do, and if I don't go work, I don't get paid. Do you know people who have been seriously maimed or died in this line of work? Uh, not. I can't say I know anybody that's died, but I know several people that have come close. A good friend of mine had a horn run up in him, uh, probably four or five inches, and uh, uh, dang near killed him. It it wasn't wasn't a very good deal. Do you find that people often dismiss what you do or lack an understanding of the role you play? Yes. Yeah. Do, do people like to be called rodeo clowns, or is that dismissive? A, a lot of guys are very sensitive to the word rodeo clown, but uh, whatever gets my point across easier to the public, I'm going to explain it that way. So a lot of guys want to be called bullfighters, but with a lot of general public, you know, they're going to automatically think matadors from Spain and totally, completely different. Completely you know? different. You don't but, see yourself as, as based in that tradition in some no, way? No, sir. You know, a lot of our moves have originated from the Spaniards. But uh, if you say rodeo clown, the, the public's going to understand more, oh, you're out there with the bulls protecting the guys. You're that guy. I'm that guy. And what is your relationship with the bull riders? Do they express gratitude to you? Sometimes. You know, a lot of them are too focused or angry when they get bucked off, you know, that they, you know, they'll just walk right out. But sometimes later, you know, they'll come up and say, hey, thanks for the job you done. Are you in the ring the moment that the, the bull is released? Yes. You are. Okay. And do they go charging right at you? Uh, no, believe it or not. A lot of bulls are, I mean, I wouldn't say trained, but they do have certain patterns that they do create through their careers. Uh, so, you know, it's my job to stay at a close enough distance to be fast to the situation that may happen, but far enough back that I don't interrupt the bull's pattern. You wear makeup. You paint your nose red. I think you have streaks of white face paint. Yes, sir. Yeah, tell me about what that makeup means to you. Is it is it, that important? It you know, if if a guy wears makeup, yeah, it is important because that's his identity. That's how the crowd will remember him. You know, later. You know, they may not recognize me now. You know, without it. But by my makeup, you know, they can be like, oh, hey, that's Wasey Munsell, just because they can recognize the face paint. And you go all over the country doing this? Yes, sir. Is it your full-time job? Yes, sir. And you're paid, what, per appearance or something? It's by performance. By performance. And how many bulls might you encounter in, in a day? In a day? Uh, see, on Saturday, we had upwards of 30. And then the last two performances, we've had 40 a day. So Wow. Yes, sir. That, the odds of getting hurt strike me as, as pretty high. And well, losing your hat. How many hats have you lost? Yeah, you know, I've been pretty fortunate on on hats. So. Okay, <laughs> those don't tend to fly off of you. Nope, I get it sucked down clear dead near to my eyebrows. So. Well, just briefly, you're 28 now. Yes, As sir. we said, the job entails a good amount of travel. Do you see yourself settling down? Uh, I, I figure as long as I'm able to do this, probably not. You know, uh, you know, I used to have a place of my own, but I quick I lost a lease on our place in Oklahoma. And, uh, and it was right in the middle of rodeo time, right in the middle of the summer. So I had really no place to go but my parents. And they're very supportive. They So I, I, I kid and joke with everybody that I'm a stay-at-home son also. A stay-at-home son, yeah. who's also itinerant. Wacy, thanks for being with us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Well, the rodeo is more than rough. It's a fact of life and it's tough to cut and it's beaver hats. 
Wacy Munsell hails from Garden City, Kansas. He's a professional bullfighter, a.k.a. rodeo clown. We spoke last year as he swung through Denver for the National Western Stock Show. From a rodeo clown now to some real jokesters. Fifty comedians welcomed in the new year at an event in Denver called 51st Jokes. There were only two rules. Comics had to write their material after midnight, January 1st. The event took place on the 2nd, and the jokes couldn't be longer than two minutes. Here are just a few of them. Your next comic under the stage, he moved here from Humboldt County, California. Please welcome Zeke Carrera! So, I used to work in an office building that had an elevator and stairs in it. And when you work in an office building that has an elevator and also stairs, it's like having two kids. Hear me out. Uh, (laughs) People say they like them both just fine, but really they know which one they'd take if there was a fire. This next comic on stage, she is currently living and performing in New York City, but she's a Colorado girl at heart. There's a country song about her somewhere. Put your hands together for Nicole Conlon, everybody. Yeah, hey. Hi. Uh, Yeah, I'm home for Christmas. I went to the Nuggets game while I was here, Uh, Nuggets Caps. The dad next to me was real upset with how arrogant LeBron James was. Uh, very, very angry about uh, the, the, just how cocky the best basketball player in the world was about how good he is at basketball. <laughs> I don't see what's so great about LeBron James. Literally everything. Literally every part of him is what's so great about him. The last, okay, this is, this is how great LeBron James is, all right? The last professional basketball uh, backboard to be shattered was Shaq in 1992. Over a decade later, 17-year-old LeBron James, during a high school game, shattered a backboard. They have invented backboards that are too strong to be shattered, which means at 17, LeBron James was stronger than science. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Uh, I'm a sports journalist professionally, so I get, that's the biggest complaint I get is like, I don't like that guy. He's too cocky. Uh, they're, the, they're literally the best in the world at what they do. There's a professional football player named Jarvis Landry who can run 20 miles an hour. And I think you're allowed, yeah, I think you're allowed to be cocky if you can get ticketed in a school zone. <laughs> this was one of our, our, our beloved that left us for L.A., and was here visiting for the new year. We're so happy she's here. Put your hands together for my girl, Kristen Rand. My woman. My woman. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy 2012. I went to the Indian, Spring, uh, Indian Hills Hot Springs, uh, where it's just these underground caves. You can just go, and there's like you can just go, get you get naked, and then you just sit in a hot spring. And I used to go a lot when I still had glasses, but I've since had LASIK, but I remembered how when I used to have glasses, it'd be perfect because I could take my glasses off and be naked, but I was like, I can't see me, so probably nobody else can see me too. (laughs) But this time, now I can like see myself and see my body, so it was a little harder, you know, to deal with mentally. But then I was in the locker room and I saw a sign on the wall that just said, did you know your body is 70% water? And I was like, damn, all this time I've been so hard on myself when really I was just hella hydrated. You know what I mean? 
Never thirsty. Never thirsty. This next comic, this guy is uh, so funny. You can see him in all the commercials in town. Put your hands together for the very funny Nathan Lund, everybody. I thought my uncle got 20 years for manslaughter last month, but it was 20 years for uh, man's laughter. He told, he told a dirty joke to a coworker who liked it a lot. It was, it was a crime because they were in a dry humor county. This last comic, he is uh, tours all around the country. He's the regular headliner at Comedy Works. You all know him. He's so funny. Put your hands together for Josh Blue, everybody. Wow. Thank you so much. Wow. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, on the way in here, I uh, slipped on the ice and I uh, fell on hard times. Denver comic Josh Blue. We also heard new jokes from Zeke Herrera, Nicole Conlin, Kristen Rand, and Nathan Lund. They were all recorded January 2nd at the Bug Theater in Denver, part of 50 First Jokes for a New Year. Finally today, In the Whale is a Denver duo made up of Nate Valdez and Eric Riley. They typically rock out with electric guitar riffs and heavy drum beats, but they were recently invited to tour with a band that required them to perform an acoustic version of their regular set. So I think we took it as a, as a nice welcome challenge. We don't want to be our one-trick pony, you know. From the CPR Performance Studio, here's In the Whale with a stripped-down version of their song Lake of Fire. I want to take you to a lake of fire You and me, Rosemary's baby They say the way is a well-walk road Babe with lies and cheats his soul Come on, baby, if you got the time Let's go down to the fire below Come on, baby, let's get down Come on down to my fire city underground. I got a day just can't refuse. You ain't got nothing else to do. Managing producer of Colorado Matters is Rachel Esterbrook, and our team includes Michael DeYuana, Andrea Dukakis, Nathan Heffel, Kareem Maddox, and Stephanie Wolf. Our audio engineers are Michael Hughes and Matt Hers. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters and follow our newsroom on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 
Thanks for being with Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. There's this little girl I know, soul to soul, just to go. She went missing, she went away.